What a beautiful and uplifting reading we just heard from the gospel, was it not? I say that with a little bit of sarcasm. If it didn't make you feel just a little bit uncomfortable, then maybe you were too busy flipping through the announcements in the back of the bulletin or admiring the beauty of the church. I know that's what I usually do when I hear that gospel passage when I'm in church. It's a difficult one. And not only that, it touches on some subjects that are incredibly personal to so many of us, especially Jesus' injunction against divorce. We'll get back to that in just a little bit. By the way, did you notice that the associate rector isn't here this Sunday, so I couldn't assign him this reading to preach about? Somehow that always happens. What we hear in this passage is Jesus changing the standard for what is sin and what is righteousness. And he does it systematically, sin by sin, issue by issue. You've heard it said that you shall not murder, but according to Jesus, just being angry at someone is enough to be thrown into hell. You've heard it said that you should deal rightly in a court case, but Jesus says that if there's any kind of conflict between you and someone else at all, you're the one who's going to be thrown in jail. You've heard it said that adultery is a bad thing, but even any kind of looking or desire at another person you're not married to, that's adultery in Jesus' book. Divorce is no longer divorce. It itself is adultery. And then any kind of false swearing is, according to Jesus, any kind of swearing at all. Never take an oath whatsoever. It's at this point that we find ourselves at a sort of theological crossroads. On the one hand, we could take Jesus at his word, at face value, and decide that we must abide by all of these commandments that he gives to us. If you go down that path, then you're going to devote a large portion of I think the devil himself has gotten into my microphone as I was just about to offer the other option. <laughs> the other option is to hear Jesus for what he is saying, that there is no way that any one human being could possibly live up to these standards. That if you try to get through life living a perfect life, not violating any rule whatsoever, then you are making an idol out of your own behavior. That truly, the only way to live in this life is to live in God's grace, trusting that it's not by your own actions that your salvation will be delivered to you, but rather by trusting fully that God is greater than you are, that there is no way that you can ever be greater than God by your actions or your righteousness. If you take that path, then the purpose of your life ethically is to live it as a joyful response to the grace that God has already placed in you. Well, obviously, I go for number two. I believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's commandment to love. You can take a look at it simply from his own life. See, Jesus, after giving this Sermon on the Mount, went out and spoke 
to the very people who were doing the things that he's talking about in this sermon. He sought out relationship with them. And when he did it, he wasn't condemning them. In fact, over and over again, we see Jesus condemning religious hypocrisy as something that he hated more than anything else. Take a look at his life, and you can see that Jesus is actually calling out all of those people who are saying that they are better than everyone else because they are following the rules. Think of the tax collector who is in the temple beating his chest with talking about the sin that he has committed versus the righteous man who tithes and gives everything that he has. Over and over again, Jesus is trying to nudge people into living a life filled with grace, not just one of abiding rules that have been handed down from heaven. It's not just by his life that Jesus demonstrated this, but also by his death. None of Jesus' closest friends and disciples are able or willing to do anything to save him. And they all, through their own individual actions, are culpable in some way for his death. In this way, Jesus is showing us that not only are we all imperfect, but we all participate in one way or another in the evil that takes place in the world. There is no way for any of us to avoid it, no matter how hard we might try. And so the task is not to try to fulfill every single commandment that he gives us. Watch out for your right eye and your right hand, my goodness. Rather, the task is to dedicate your life to living in God's grace, looking at every person that you meet and understanding that that person too is covered in God's grace. To live your life joyfully, in freedom, not worrying about how God is going to condemn you, but rather responding to all the goodness that there is that God has put here with your entire being. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, this same Gospel where he says these words in the Sermon on the Mount, that the most important thing is to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and also to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no way you can do these two things if you are also obsessed with the tiny little details of the commandments that have been handed down by God. But second, look at the language that Jesus is using. Do you think that Jesus really wants you to cut your eye out or chop your hand off? Do you think that Jesus really thinks that you're going to go to prison if for some reason you mess things up with your neighbor that you have a conflict with? Do you think that Jesus is really condemning you to the fires of hell for looking at someone with lust? That would seem to be contrary to everything else that we know about Jesus and what he said and did in the world. Rather, is it possible, maybe just a little bit, that there might be a little bit of a sense of humor in the gospel? Maybe is Jesus exercising something we call hyperbole, language that is overly exaggerated, in order to make a point, in order to get our attention? That's the part of the crossroads that I choose to go down. 
And making that choice has real consequences. There are very many Christian traditions that claim tens of millions of adherents throughout this country and hundreds of millions throughout the world who pour all kinds of attention and energy into going down that first path, encouraging people to abide by these commandments that Jesus has given, condemning things like looking at someone with some kind of desire, condemning things like divorce. And here's where I get to that point. Much is made of this passage in Matthew about divorce, and it's used as the basis for the injunction against divorce, especially in the Roman Catholic Church and in many evangelical traditions. In my personal experience, I've never seen anyone who has gone through a divorce because of some kind of frivolous reason. And usually, it's an incredibly painful experience for everyone involved. People only do it because there's a very real and present reason why it's necessary. And in moments like that, I think that the right response is love and care, not condemnation. And I actually think that Jesus would have agreed with me. There's a little bit of cultural background to this commandment as well. Feminist theologians have interpreted this passage as one where Jesus is protecting women because women who have been divorced in ancient Roman society had much lower standards of living than women who were married. They would have been cut off from the economic support that the institution of marriage afforded them. But I also have a personal interest in this topic. I wasn't really raised in church at all. And the reason for that is that my father, who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, was divorced before I was born. His experience of condemnation from the clergy in the parish where he attended seemed to him the height of hypocrisy, especially after he had attended Mass almost every single day and was an altar boy when he went to Catholic school. In the moment when he actually needed the church the most, the church told him that he was bad and wrong. And he decided never to go back. And you know what? I don't blame him. That's pretty nasty. So those are some interpretations of these things that Jesus is talking about here. And it goes to a really deep and important point in Christian theology. You might know that this idea of grace through God alone versus grace through works is one of the foundational principles of the Protestant Reformation. In the 20th century, there was one of the most influential theologians of our time named Karl Barth, who decided to take up this very topic in his classic work, Church Dogmatics. According to Barth, We are chosen, or the elect of God. A lot of people have some allergy to that word, but Bart reinterpreted what the word elect meant, this word that Paul uses in his letters. According to Bart, all humanity is chosen by God. Every single person is a part of the elect. God creates grace 
as a part of creation, rather than as a response to the sin of humanity. That means that when we experience God's grace or see it in some way, we are actually seeing God in God's own being. Grace is something, according to Bart, that pervades everything that we have. It is one of the first causes of life. And it means that God created us and this entire universe out of grace, and so that we too could experience that grace. Bart is responding directly to what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5. He's explaining to us what it means to worship a God of grace primarily and not a God of judgment. This theology allows for a more expansive and creative thinking about who and what God is and how we should live our lives in the face of things that happen that are bad that should not be happening in the world. This type of theology or this way of reading Jesus' passage here opens up something new for us, a different way of seeing the world, a way that tells us that the most important thing that we can do is to take that grace that God is giving us seriously, not to cast it away or to take it for granted, but rather to use it as the spiritual engine that keeps us moving day after day, week after week, year after year. Imagine if Jesus were giving the Sermon on the Mount in 2023. He would probably be talking about a lot of things that are happening in our own society. Imagine him saying something like this. You have heard it said, do not imprison someone falsely. But I say to you, if you do not actively fight to change a system in which two million Americans are held in prison, the vast majority of them black and brown people, then you too are culpable. Maybe he could have said something like this. You have heard it said, blessed are the peacemakers. But I say, if you don't dedicate your life to loving your neighbor, no matter how much you may despise what they stand for and what they believe, then you too are condemned to a prison in which everyone is fighting all the time. Maybe he would have said something like this. You have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say, if you allow one more innocent person to be killed by the police, then you too have the blood of Tyree Nichols on your hands. Jesus wasn't playing around when he was talking. He was trying to deliver an incredibly serious and life-changing message to us. That's why he used words and images that we simply had no choice to ignore but rather must engage with. He's also pointing out to us that by our broken nature as human beings, we will never live perfect lives, nor will we ever live in a perfect society. But rather, if we decide to use this one precious life that God has given to us to try
try to make the world look more like the one that Jesus wants for us, then indeed we will find our salvation through God's grace. So friends, keep moving forward. Keep living in grace. Keep loving God and your neighbor. Do not give in to the temptation to think that God is punishing you or judging you for your sins. Rather, when you mess up, return to God. Rededicate yourself to this work. Try to look anew for God's love for you and for your neighbor. And by these things, we shall all be saved.